Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Welcome to my show, America, Can We Talk? Today, we're going to talk about Bobulinski, Bus Biden, Rich Higgins, author and former NSA joins me, and Trump and a statesman-like debate tonight. And of course, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. America Can We Talk is sponsored by GC Works, a Dallas-based company performing advanced technology research in the oil and gas industry. Hello again and welcome to America Can We Talk and to today's First Five. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. The Hunter Biden laptop email scandal continues to unfold and explode. One thing that happened today to add to this story uh, is that one of Hunter Biden's business partners named Tony Bobulinski, great name, Tony Bobulinski, listed as a recipient of an email published by the New York Post, which of course broke the story about Hunter Biden's laptop containing all those emails that are now being so closely scrutinized. Uh, this gentleman, Tony Bobulinski, um, this appeared to detail a business arrangement involving a Chinese company and members of the Biden family. And this gentleman, Tony Bobulinski, has confirmed that the email is genuine and provided more information regarding the Biden's role in the deal with China. Specifically, the email includes a note that says Hunter has, for some office expectations, he will deliver, he will elaborate a proposed equity split reference, 20 for H and 10 held by H for the big guy, with no further details. So Bobulinski has now actually contacted Fox News and said the reference to the big guy in this much publicized May 2017 email is in fact a reference to Joe Biden. Bobulinski is the CEO of Sinohawk Holdings. He explained it was a partnership between the Chinese operate between the Chinese operating through CEFC Chairman Yi and the Biden family. He said he was brought in as a CEO by Hunter Biden and James Gilliar, who was listed as the sender of the email. This gentleman speaking up, actually I sent a picture of him. I'll show you, this is not, this is a uh, gentleman who is a graduate, uh, is, is a military guy. This is his Navy photo. There he is, there is Tony Bobulinski. Looks pretty straightforward. The point of telling you this in today's first five is this. The Biden family continues to try to say that everything uncovered in the laptop that Hunter Biden left in some apparent drunken state at a Delaware-based computer repair service, the Biden family story still is, it's a smear job, it is false. You had Jill Biden weigh in the media this morning saying, you know, I, I want the media to stop picking on my family. You know, they always go the sympathetic route, people are picking on my family ignoring the reality that what appears to have been uncovered between uh, because of Hunter Biden's having left the laptop and now that laptop and all emails being scrutinized by the FBI, uh, by Rudy Giuliani, God bless that man, and numerous others shows not just a one-time transaction between Hunter Biden and individuals in China that may have involved transfer of funds to the Biden family, including to Joe Biden, 
but the emails are really painting a very broad, wide picture of ongoing corruption in the Biden family. The use of Hunter Biden as at being paid or arranging for contracts with foreign entities, money making its way to Joe Biden as vice president. Somehow those same entities end up getting actual contact, White House meetings with Joe Biden, not an easy thing to accomplish, I'm sure, for the average Joe, but all of this seeming to unfold just to lay out for the American public to see a pattern of corruption uh, that is becoming increasingly hard to explain. I'm going to touch later on the debate tonight because I think that one of the most pressing things to talk about is how President Trump should conduct himself. He, he did ask the debate committee, could they please in tonight's debate between Joe Biden and President Trump, could they have foreign policy as a topic? And of course, the debate commission, uh, you know, that themselves radically leftist, biased, intolerant of Republicans and certainly of Donald Trump said, no, we're not going to be talking about foreign policy. So Donald Trump is basically saying, yeah, I think we are going to. So it'll be very interesting to watch. Somehow, I'm sure President Trump, in the course of the debate, is going to introduce the American people to allow the content of these emails, even if the debate commission is trying to say um, that they're not going to have that topic be on the agenda tonight. This, so this Hunter business partner, closing out our first five days, this Hunter business partner is confirming the email and details that there was a push by Joe Biden to make millions from China. And that, my very fine friends, is today's first five. We have a guest joining us by phone today. He's been on the show before. In fact, I want to talk a little bit with him about the first time he came on the show. His name is Rich Higgins. And before we bring him on, I'll give you the briefest of introduction to him. You may recognize his name. He came on the show actually back in 2017. He is, at this time, he is the Vice President of Unconstrained Analytics. He spent 20 years of his life combating terrorism. He's an expert on the nexus between theological doctrines and information age unconventional warfare. He served on the National Security Council in the Trump administration as a director of strategic planning and was removed in 2017 after writing this warning memo, which I have in front of me and which um, there was a, uh, that's the reason we invited uh, years ago, we invited Rich Higgins to join me on the show because he wrote a memo in 2017 called POTUS, which is President of the United States, and Political Warfare, dated May 2017. And that uh, writing of that memo ended up in his being asked to leave the National Security Council. But he has a lengthy history uh, in working in um, intelligence. He's in combating terrorism. And as I said, the, the, the nexus between theological doctrines and information age unconventional warfare. Uh, he has a long other resume, but I, and he worked for the Department of Defense. Um, he's worked in Special Operations Command. Um, he worked as chair of Special Operations in Low Intensity Conflict at the National Defense University. Lots of other things. But what I want to talk with him about is the Trump White House and where we are today in 2020. So I believe we have Rich Higgins on the phone. Hi, Rich. Hey, how are you, Debbie? It's good to be back. Good to have you, sir. So glad you could join me today. Um, so, Rich, I always want to start with, you know, I don't know if you even remember this, but back in 2017, when you published that memo, um, POTUS and Political Warfare, um, that was the first, I think you'd been at our, you had, we'd met you in the past before that, but um, I know we, I remember we were on vacation 
Um, and I heard about this and got a hold of you. I was doing my show from California and got a hold of you and had you uh, talk about the memo. So, um, because it was really quite, and it, it was, I uh, got a lot of attention uh, and the left didn't like it too well. And before I get into all that's happening now, I want to ask you to quickly summarize for our readers why you wrote this, our listeners, why you wrote this POTUS and political warfare in May of 2017. What were the basic points you were trying to get across? <clears throat> Well, you have to go back in time, Debbie, to understand the genesis of the memo. It was, um, you know, before the names Peter Strzok, before the name Lisa Page, before the name Andrew McKiff. These, these were not household names back then. So what I was describing for the president, unbeknownst to me at the time, was um, what we later uh, found out to be Crossfire Hurricane and the unlawful... Um, just uh, you know, subversion and sabotage and spying on uh, both campaign and then President Trump. Um, you know, and, and you know, I, I recognized what was happening around me because uh, that's you know that's kind of the community I come from, right? We would do these types of things to foreign leaders, uh, Saddam Hussein, for example. And it was clearly uh, to me uh, happening to the president, and. Um, Nobody seemed to really appreciate how serious the situation was. So I wrote the memo recognizing that H.R. McMaster and some of the guys at the National Security Council weren't on side, got it to him. And uh, when McMaster found out, my feet didn't hit the ground and I was fired from the National Security Council, which, you know, given the circumstances, I think is a badge of honor. Um, you know, the people who were uh, attempting to take him out uh, didn't like me much. And, uh, you know, going back to your monologue for a second, I, you know, I think the thing about 2016 and now 2020 is uh, everybody elected President Trump to put America first, right? And I think aside from the corruption and the graft and the extortion and all the other things that you hear about with your, you know, your five-minute monologue there, um, you know, the thing that I that jumps out at me is about 10 years ago, um, the Central Intelligence Agency had 36 of their spies. These were Chinese nationals working on behalf of the United States in China. Uh, 36 of these nationals were hunted down and executed between 2010 and 2012. And it was largely passed off to a uh, cyber brief. But now we know that in April of 2010, Hunter Biden was negotiating these enormous illicit uh, fund activities uh, with the Chinese. And the preliminary reporting is $1.5 billion went into this fund um, that Hunter Biden was standing up under BGR. Uh, but the actual numbers are actually much, much higher, a factor of five higher. Uh, it's in the neighborhood of $7 billion uh, that went into that fund. So you can imagine what the fee is on that. So you're suggesting, which I would completely seem as plausible, but you're suggesting that part of the deal that Hunter Biden to get that kind of money, he actually may have been exposing these people who were working on America's behalf in China? I think we have to call into question. I, I, you know, I can't say for a fact that that's what happened, but the timing is certainly suspicious. That uh, literally within a matter of months of that happening, we then say, see, we we don't know we don't know what the Bidens gave up right now. Okay, clearly um, the Bidens are functioning as some sort of de facto agent for the government of China, which is a militantly you know fascistic communist state, uh, certainly the most uh, totalitarian state that has ever existed. And um, it just it boggles the mind uh, that that, uh, you know, a major political party in the United States would put somebody like that forward because they all knew. I mean, we know, you know the Democrat Party leadership knew uh, about this corruption. 
And um, it, it really is just kind of, sh- it's almost shocked. I'm shocked, Debbie. I don't get shocked easily. I'm mm-hmm. shocked by this. Actually, that was one thing I was going to ask you. Really, I, I do want to talk about your new book, which we're going to show our listeners in a moment. I, I just and I will tell you in full uh, disclosure that I this morning I was actually going through to read your Twitter feed and saw that you had a new book out, and that's why I got a hold of you. Wanted to see if you could join me. We are going to talk about your new book, which is called The Memo, um, and it is a uh, just a great new book that we're going to run through the. Um, the connection between, yeah, there we have, Matt, uh, Derek has a picture of the memo, subtitled, 20 Years Inside the Deep State, Fighting for America First by Rich Higgins. Uh, I ordered it in Amazon today, both the, the physical copy, and then I also got it on my Kindle, so I could uh, skim it today, but I haven't been through the entire thing, uh, although I definitely will do that. But it's called The Memo by you, um, and that's really when I realized uh, that you had done this, uh, written this new book. But back to where we are. So. That was one question I had, even following all of this about the Bidens and what has come to light because of Hunter Biden's laptop being uh, exposed, or thankfully, for the American people. But do you think it's possible that all that Hunter Biden was doing and funneling money to his dad and making arrangements for people to visit the White House, is it possible that somehow the Bidens kept that completely secret inside the Obama administration, or is it more likely some people had to know what he was doing? Oh, sir. certainly some people knew what he was doing. I mean, caution. I mean, we, we saw people warning about the Ukraine portion of the corruption. I mean, the thing that's amazing here is we have a whole constellation of corruption. We have the China corruption. We have the Ukraine corruption. We have the Moscow mayor corruption. Who knows what else is out there? I mean, we're, we're at the point right now, we, we just basically have to assume this is a, you know, this is a crime family that you know, is running for the vice presidency of the United States. And when you look at the China thing bothers me the most because they are the most, you know, nuclear power for starters. Um, They are a real uh, geopolitical competitor with the United States today. Um, You know, one of the one of the four or five countries in the world, we could have, you know, potential real conflicts with them. And, uh, you know, the the fact that uh, a man, you know, Joe Biden, who was sitting on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, befriended um, the Chinese ambassador, that Chinese ambassador subsequently found himself arranging these deals in China for Hunter Biden, and who now sits as one of the minister, I think he's the Minister of Foreign Affairs, on the Chinese Communist Politburo, and is very close to Xi, and he is now basically de facto controlling Joe Biden, right? Um, just just mind-boggling, mind-boggling. It is, and I would think that people inside the White House, uh, they're happy in every administration somebody or many somebodies who have the job to watch for potential attempts to corrupt elected officials, to approach them, to offer bribes, people trying to protect the administration so that because these kind of efforts may be made and people whose job it is to keep an eye on the elected officials. So because any kind of corruption eventually hurts the whole administration, hurts the whole political party. So it seems like a lot of people had to turn their, their eyes the other way during the years that uh, Joe Biden served as our vice president, or otherwise we would have, this would have all come to the surface publicly sooner. Is that fair? I think that's fair, and I also think that a, a huge portion of the blame uh, for the mess that became you know, United States foreign policy under the Obama administration uh, rests you know, certainly on the shoulders, uh, squarely on the shoulders of the media and of journalists um, who have become and devolved into nothing but just propagandists. 
Jesus. I mean, they're a disgrace. And uh, I, I feel, I, you know, I feel bad for the American public who is just constantly having um, lies and distortions fed at them. Uh, even to, to this day, you know, still not covering the Biden laptop and, you know, these corrupt intelligence officials coming out and saying, oh, it's, it could be Russian disinformation. What a load. <laughs> it's just remarkable. It's remarkable. It- it is, and actually, that Russian disinformation. First, it was uh, it was um, I can't remember the congressman's name who floated that idea. And then uh, Biden said, Joe Biden said in some interview, we have 50 former intelligence agencies that have signed on, saying this clearly is Russian disinformation. Disinformation. Fortunately, you had both DNI Ratcliffe and the FBI saying there's absolutely no evidence. No, I don't think so. And now more things are coming out that validate it because they are other people mentioned in the emails that have now come to the surface who are saying, yeah, actually, these are all valid. These are real. It's the most amazing thing. Okay, I want to turn to something else because one thing that you, um, uh, it was Adam Schiff who said that, no, I couldn't think of his name. Okay, so one thing that you uh, spoke about and you talk about a lot is this idea of a deep state. And one thing that um, the leftists do in order to uh, mock, ridicule, silence people who try to expose what goes on inside uh, some of government and use the expression deep state is a kind of a, you know, uh, treated as just kind of a crazy conspiracy theory uh, that deep state does not really exist. It just exists in the mind of right wing conspiracy theorists. There's no such real thing. But one, some things you talked about, and I want to dive in first. You, you were somewhere in the federal government arena uh, in the Obama years. And I want to focus on that first because Part of what you, I've heard you speak on other occasions about during the Obama years, it appeared that the political agenda of the Obama administration was made evident and was the kind of the rule that made its way down within uh, numerous agencies, the White House, numerous agencies as the way things are going to be. It was like a, it was like a beginning, I think, of the deep state. But can you talk about that, the Obama administration and how there was just a pressing forward of its agenda at various levels of national security? Yeah, look, Debbie, I mean, we can pretend Obama was the first black president and we can pretend that it's a, you know, he was a, a, you know, a progressive liberal in the traditional sense of the word. He wasn't. I mean, he he is an avowed Marxist ideologue. He is an open communist, an Alinskyite. Uh, you know, his entire agenda ideologically was the weakening, what he used to call, right? I mean, do we remember the term, the managed decline of the United States? Um you know, in, 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 in service of this, you know, wider socialist utopia that, you know, that we all know is just, you know, the pathway, uh, pathway to hell, really. I mean, it's, uh, they, they, can, they can package it up. But what we're really seeing is now on the streets with Black Lives Matter movement, with Antifa, is just the further escalation of the same movement. Now, we're 100, you know, 103 years, arguably, into the, you know, the worldwide socialist revolution begun in, in uh, you know, the former Soviet Union or Russia. And, you know, we, we've seen over these 100 years, the great citadels of the West fall one by one. You know, the churches, you know, the, the Catholic Church is totally fallen. Um, you know, these citadels of, of the, the guardians of the West, the CIA, Right, the FBI. I mean, whoever thought you'd see the CIA and the FBI coming out defensive, you know, in, in in defense of communism against the American public, but we're seeing that happen, and uh, it's very important that we keep our eyes open and recognize it because I think where Obama was taking the country was um, 
you know, uh, it was a it was a co-option strategy. It was a Gramsci strategy. You know, they they talk about the long march through the institutions, the grab the grabbing and the um, the um, the faux authority within these institutions that they claim for themselves. That's the deep state, right? They believe that the state is God, right? And if the state wills it, it should be. And that's that's what we see. That the argument that's existing now between these two parties, though. You know, and, and this is my my dang on Republican Party is I don't think they're focused enough on the American middle class, and we see that today, right? That President Trump didn't win in 2016 because he was the best Republican in the party sense of the word. He won because he's an American. And in the interview he released today with Leslie Stahl, Leslie Stahl on 60 Minutes asked him, "Who do you think your supporters are?" And and the president looked at her briefly, and he. He didn't get into party politics. He said, the people who support me love America. Yep. Go, you can go ahead. Yeah, it was great. That actually, what I thought was a, a great strategic, uh, the stroke of brilliance for the president to release that. There was a 60 Minutes interview. They, were going, they 60 Minutes, wanted to put out on Sunday evening. He recorded the whole thing and put it out today. Uh, yeah, it was really a smart move because they, as, as he's, saying by the time it makes it to the uh, airwaves on Sunday night in 60 minutes, it'll be greatly uh, edited. He'll be made to look terrible. Um, And he really, uh, I love that he put it out. I thought it was just brilliant. Yeah, look, he's he's a great guy. Okay, I mean, he's got weird personality. There's no question about that. He's he's an acquired taste. I'm from Boston, so the fast-talking, loud, brash, that doesn't bother me. (laughs) A lot of people don't know how to take that. And I think, you know, the, the challenge that he's had, though, is because he doesn't come from government, right? I mean, he's, he's never had to set policy outside of maybe his corporation before. But, you know, the process of making, you know, government policy with three, you know, the U.S. government has three million employees, right? Three million. Um, it's just hard to even comprehend managing an organization that huge, right? So he had to learn some of the hard lessons. And when you pick up my book... Um, you see, I give a very unvarnished, you know, truthful look at what it's like inside the system, you know, why myself and others like me inside the system supported the president's MAGA agenda, and then the difficulties he encountered as he kind of, you know, he landed on Omaha Beach and the fight began to take back the government, right? It's, that's, it's, so it's a, it's a war story, it's a patriotic story, it's a story of betrayal, it's a story of revival, and I think... You know, that's that's kind of America's story, and we're living it right now, you know, and I hope people are paying attention because we are really living in historical times right now. Oh, we most certainly are. Actually, I'll ask uh, Derek, put the picture of your book up again. I'm not done talking about it. I want to put the picture up again. It's called, This is we're speaking with Rich Higgins. It's called The, the Memo, 20 Years Inside the Deep State, Fighting for America First. Great, great title. So now getting back to you, Rich, in this book, you do. I love that you made the Omaha Beach analogy. And I love how, as you spoke about President Trump and what answer you gave to Leslie Stahl, this is why I've said over and over, President Trump did not really win as a, he certainly is not a country club Republican and he's not the right wing, uh, you know, uh, Christian Republican base. He just won because he, he said himself and encouraged people to love the idea of America, to remember what America is, to care about America's strength and her ability to move forward. And he just renewed a love of America. And people, it actually helped people realize 
that during the previous years under the Obama administration, there had been a gradual denigration, uh, derision toward the idea of America, the goodness of America, the history of America. And, and this, just him coming along, President Trump calling and saying, no, America's a great country. We've got to restore that greatness. It lit the fire under so many people in America, not just Republicans, but, but people uh, on both sides of the aisle and certainly kind of the heartland America that had kind of been the victims of the radical movement that Obama put in place, the kind of socialist denigration of America's free markets. Uh, those people, they wanted America back, too. They wanted that free market back. Okay, I'm going to try and talk about it. So you, be, you went to work in the beginning of the uh, Trump administration, and you worked in that national security um, uh, function there. Your job was, I'm going to find it quickly, but you were, um, you were, in, you were uh, don't tell me, strategic planning, part of a unit that was made of a director and three of us to work as planners, ideological warfare, focus on communism and Islam. First of all, is that ever your cup of tea or what? But can you describe what you're supposed to be doing in that job? Uh, in, a, in a nutshell, um, you know, so much of what the National Security Council does is focused on uh, day-to-day, um, you know, issues, right? So, you know, this this country did that, or this issue popped here, or this meeting's coming up. Our little group was designed to shape uh, longer-term efforts. So, you know, we, we would be looking at, okay, you know, the European theater, what are we, you know, what are the policy things that we're dealing with there? What are the issues of the day? Myself, I was very much focused on uh, the wider ideological challenges. And this, this really gets to the heart of, I think, you know, one of the things that's facing us today is so much of the domestic fight where, you know, you talk about, you know, the left-wing Marxists and communists or the jihadist groups and the, you know, the subversive jihadist groups that are operating inside the United States. They are intertwined now. They're inextricably intertwined with a lot of the geopolitical challenges that we're facing. Communists vis-a-vis China, Venezuela, Cuba, etc. And the Islamist slash jihadist threat because of the issues that we're facing now. And they seem to be creeping to the forefront day by day uh, with Turkey. And, and so, you know, it's, it's this convergence of all these threats that... that was really the purpose of having a strategic planning office, which is to be looking out over the horizon at the um, at the bigger, wider cultural, ideo- ideological, regional, political issues that 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 face the nation or that face the world. I love that. I love that some of your caliber thinking and education and background was brought to bear on that subject. But into the you're into the National Security Council. And then did you realize fairly early on that there, that uh, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn was just headed for trouble? I mean, could you tell that the he was being set up by the FBI? Um, how soon did it take for you to figure that out? Well, I mean, I, I, I can tell you because I was with the, the campaign and I, I you know, I, I was a counterterrorism advisor for them and spoke on their behalf at the Republican National Convention. Um, what I saw during the transition was alarming, you know, so we saw the, you know, oh, you know, the Putin's puppet and all the other commentary that we saw during the campaign. Normally that stuff goes on until election day. Somebody concedes and it kind of you pack it up and you go home. Right. Um, not this time. Uh, it accelerated. Um, I even sent a, uh, I have emails I sent to General Flynn warning him uh, that, you know, clearly Clapper and Brennan were up to something. Uh, same thing with Bannon, and and we saw um, subversive actors getting inside the transition team, you know, bringing in um, 
bringing in people who were not of the MAGA mindset, uh, some of them in pretty influential positions. And uh, it was really, really alarming. And we were trying, you know, we're trying to get people's attention. But again, uh, you know, the euphoria of having been elected, right, with this little gaggle of 200 people, maybe, uh, you know, it was a true pirate ship of a campaign. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you, know, you know, and having been elected, you know, Steve, I think Steve Bannon, uh, Steve Bannon said it best. It's his 60 Minutes interview a couple of years ago where he said, look, the original sin of the administration was turning to the Republican National Committee to help staff the administration. Because all of a sudden, all the factions, and I'm not saying one thing or another about the factions, but all the factions in the Republican Party began competing with one another for this, you know, for these power positions around a president who didn't have a kind of an entourage of his own. And so we had to deal with that. It was it was really tough political fighting. And, you know, very quickly, within, you know, taking position at the NSC, very quickly became clear that there were about 10 guys, maybe 10 guys uh, and gals who, you know, who had supported the MAGA agenda. And then you had kind of your institutional detailees, and we had, you know, probably 70 or 80 Obama administration holdovers still there. And uh, it was just surreal. Well, that's actually the next thing I want to go to was you mentioned in your book that you actually realized and you were into the National Security Council under the very beginning time of President Trump's presidency. You mentioned that one of the people that you came to know there was Eric Charamella, who became mm-hmm. the whistleblower. So, so how much did the, uh, these uh, Obama holdovers inside the NSC, how much did they enter, end up undermining President Trump's agenda you know, then and then is it still happening now? Is we still have enough of the these uh, deep state left wing actors interfering with his agenda even today? But back then, how bad was it? How much power did they have? Uh, near total power. I mean, uh, it, you know, the, the president was fighting by himself. All right. I mean, he he was literally fighting from the Oval Office out. And, um, you know, his closest advisors, many of them were not ideologically aligned with him. And so, you know, they so instead of, you know, when you look at like the Obama administration and the Obama administration, his national security advisor, his chief of staff, his strategic advisors, Val Jarrett, they helped him implement their collective vision and drive their policy out from the Oval Office down into the executive branch through the various cabinet secretaries and the National Security Council, et cetera. In the Trump administration, at the very beginning, what we saw was the president would say, hey, I want to, for example, withdraw from Afghanistan. That would go to the National Security Council staff. The National Security Council staff would give him three options back of what he was going to be able to do, none of which included withdrawing from Afghanistan. <laughs> <It's> like- <laughs> right? So that's, that was what would happen. It, it, it was like this odd game of ping pong back and forth, right? It was like, uh, who's in charge here? You know, so this deep state, quote-unquote deep state, I hate that term, by the way, it's just the institutional bureaucracy and then the interests that, it, you know, that protect it. Um, and so, you, you know, you have this president in this ongoing battle with, in many respects, his own staff. And so, you know, I think, you know, particularly with, like, McMaster, McMaster saw it, his job is to tell the president what the institutions would let him do. And, and you know, he would say, you know, uh, you know we're going to form strategy based on our values and the process norms. And I'm like, well, you know, normally you base your strategy on what your enemy is doing and what your objectives are and your interests, right? <laughs> that didn't really matter to them. They, you know, they saw their primary job as control this president. That is actually one of the most amazing things, and people comment about it so often, even today in 2020, how President Trump 
you know, he had a vision back when he decided to run, announced he was running as he came forward in his uh, candidacy and the presidency about this idea of restoring America. And he's not a deeply ideological guy, and he's not really even a deeply, um, you know, he's strategic intuitively, and he knows what's, and he knows he loves America, he knows he loves freedom, he loves free markets, he loves a strong military, you gotta have all that. But he really was, so because he was so different in his background from former presidents, he didn't have the bench of people like Obama could reach out to when he took office and say, you know, everyone knows my left wing Marxist agenda. Let's all get on board. And here's how we're going to push it out. Trump didn't have that. And so he had to struggle with he had he had some people around him who at least believed in him and supported him. And certainly you were key in that you were a, a supporter during the campaign and then uh, you know, had a hard time in the National Security Council getting people to understand the seriousness of what you were saying. But is he still pretty much alone today? Do you sense he's got people around him that are better than, than at the beginning to help him do his agenda? He has started, and I think it really began for him back in January. I saw him right around the time um, where it was clear he was going to come out of the impeachment okay, you know, so mid to late January. He began making some uh, some personnel moves, right? He, he brought in a young guy named John McEntee to run his personnel office. He started, uh, you know, he moved Mulvaney down the road and he brought in Mark Meadows. And uh, I think, you know, since then we've seen him bringing more and more people who are aligned with kind of his agenda. Unfortunately, we had, you know, the, the COVID disaster uh you know, both in terms of its, you know, its impact by, you know, the, the, the biological threat they're in, but these lockdowns and the draconian response and the media's uh, utilization of it to just absolutely put pressure across the system. I mean, you know, if, if, if you're wondering how much the Marxists and globalists hate President Trump, you need no look, look no further than what they're doing with COVID. Uh, I could, I have, you know, actually, who was on my show just yesterday, um, and you may have heard her name, Dr. Simone Gold, who's based in California. She happened to be in town yesterday. It was great. So she was. She spoke at my conference a couple weeks ago, but then she was in the studio yesterday. And she has, because of her background as a doctor and a lawyer, she's very clear on how this is entire American response to COVID is political. It is. It is irrational medically and irrational politically so but yeah go ahead and tell i'd love to have you elaborate your thoughts about how the response to COVID has been shaped by the cultural marxists well COVID is a political warfare weapon now i mean it's it's yeah sure the, you know there is a virus it is called COVID 19 or china virus if you will but the reality is that um the economic lockdowns the population control measures, the psychological warfare associated with it, the propaganda, the disinformation, uh, the societal pressures. I mean, the, the prolific, and I mean prolific, economic attack that has come with this. Uh, it's just, it is absolutely mind-boggling. And uh, we, you know, we haven't begun to see the consequences of these decisions yet. I mean, we, we, ha you know, we are going to have to really tighten our belt here to get smart about what we do with our budget going forward and um you know i think think looking you know looking at it just to you know throw a tactical example uh the debate that's coming up tonight uh was supposed to be about foreign policy or at least a large part of it was supposed to be about foreign policy but the debate commission recognizing that the president's actually been pretty effective on foreign policy wants to again return it to COVID. 
because it's the the club they want to keep beating Trump with, right? Um, the but it, you know the thing that bothers me about it as well is that the the Marxists claim this they claim anti science is science, right? I mean they're 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 militantly hostile against reason and critical thinking. They disavow the scientific method on its face, right? They say we believe in science, and in the next sentence they say boys can be girls. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. they are they are anti-science. But remember, the reason that they do that, okay, the reason they do that is that false science provides to them false authority. Wear your mask. Right? I took ninth grade biology. I studied mechanical engineering undergrad. I took ninth grade biology. I also studied biochemical weapons in the Army. And the thing I always remember about biology is how small a virus was because it floored me when I was a kid. When I was in the Army, I remember them telling us, if they use a viral weapon against you, don't bother putting on your protective gear. It won't work. Oh, yeah. Dr. Simone Gold was saying yesterday how the size of one microbe of this COVID-19 is one one-thousandth the size of one strand of hair. So right. the, the mask, or her, the analogy, which is kind of entertaining, she uses is, Wearing a mask to keep out COVID um, microbes is like building a chain link fence to keep out mosquitoes. Completely pointless. Right. As great as a great analogy. Right. Okay, Rich, I could talk to you. For, I, honestly, I said at the beginning three hours, but honestly, I could, I could. I love this conversation. I want to thank you for writing a great book. I mean, I even just my skim read today. I know is one. I'm going to wait for the real paperback one to come or the hardcover so I can underline and do all that. But it's a great book. If I could ask Derek, who's filling in today for Matt the Wonderful. Derek, put that picture up again. The Memo, 20 Years Inside the Deep State, Fighting for America First by Rich Higgins. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it on Kindle uh, from Amazon and, and hardcover, which I have now done and will ha be here in a few weeks. So Rich Higgins, I love it. And I love the idea. You have been a fighter for the American America First agenda, even before President Trump came along and gave it that name. So I thank you so much for being available today, and thank you for that great book, and thanks for joining me. Hey, Debbie, thank you. Have a good one. You too, sir. Okay, folks, I really do recommend that book. It is a great read, and he is, you know, we, um, I, I have had him, uh, I've brought him to Dallas several times for events and had him speak. He is one of the smartest people you will ever talk to, really, really bright, really well-educated, and able to connect dots um, he's just a brilliant thinker and writer in his time. He, what really happened to him inside the National Security Council was he put out a warning to the president and to the president's team about how the president was being undermined. And it was just, it was, I mean, it's one of those memos, I think it's seven or eight pages, I have it right here, seven or eight pages, but, you know, every sentence, numerous sentences are so lengthy and complex, you have to read them three times to realize, oh my gosh, I finally get what he's saying basically talking about the attack on President Trump and his MAGA agenda uh, coming from the cultural Marxist, the deep state, whatever term you want to use for the people who stayed inside the bureaucracy in Washington long after Obama left with a very much the effort to continue to push Obama's Marxist agenda while pretending they were there working with President Trump. Okay, one last quick topic for today. Um, I want to talk about Trump and the statesman-like debate. Okay, people. I guess there will be a debate tonight. I actually kind of wondered as a story unfolded about Hunter Biden's laptop and all that now the world all knows, except the media keeps pretending they don't know it, but everybody else knows it. I wondered if you would have the left decide to suddenly have Joe Biden, you know, come down with the flu or COVID or something to become unavailable. 
because this is deadly stuff that they're talking about here. And I want to just run through a couple of things, several important points about the debate tonight. Assuming it actually occurs, um, I encourage you to watch it. I want to talk a little bit about some people, even on the conservative side, thought that President Trump was too harsh, too confrontational during the previous debate. And if you watch that, President Trump did you know, talk over the end of his time, as did Joe Biden, um, and did interrupt. But I want you to stop and think for a moment what corner the media, the cultural Marxists, the leftists, the entire operation of the radical left in this country, the corner they have tried to force President Trump into, and therefore what that means about how he should respond. You have corruption that would bring down any Republican ever in United States history, evident to the world, and the entire media is acting like it doesn't happen. In fact, that was one of the Leslie Stahl little lines when President Trump put out the Leslie Stahl interview that was supposed to play on Sunday night for 60 minutes after the CBS edits it down to make Trump look bad. But President Trump made some comment about, you know, well, the Biden administration, the Biden team is, you know, they're, they're, they're in a scandal. There's a scandal going on. And she said something. No, there's not. I mean, this is like saying the sun is not hot. What do you mean the sun's hot? How can you? Everybody knows. But the media believes they can push this whole agenda, this whole get Trump out, get Biden in, and they can just look you straight in the face and lie. Crazy level, crazy. But back to the debate tonight. So President Trump has been, as you were just hearing from our previous guest today, Rich Higgins, since the time he took office, he has been maligned by the Obama era holdovers in his administration in the White House. And we only talk about the White House and the NSC with Rich Higgins, but these people obviously deeply embedded in the FBI and the DOJ, which is why we had the completely false farce accusation of Russia collusion, followed by the farce of an impeachment over a conversation with the Ukrainian president, with President Trump on the phone with the Ukrainian president, engaging and encouraging him to look into what we now know is massive corruption, actually committed, have evidence of, of Biden. And somehow Biden can say on open tape, we're going to withhold a billion dollars from you, Ukraine's, in, you know, uh, unless you fire the prosecutor looking into my son's company. So you have flat out corruption on national stage. Everyone's seen it. But the left thinks they can try and they did succeed in, you know, the technical term impeaching. The vote of impeachment occurred in the House, but the Senate did not remove him, as you all know. But the point is, this is a president who's been falsely accused of collusion falsely accused of doing something wrong with Ukraine when the Ukraine's been the entire, the entire corruption in the Ukraine is owned by Biden, the entire corruption with the Russians by Biden and by Hillary Clinton. And as you have the American response to the COVID virus, the entire contraption of the media and the left-wing powers in this country using the virus as a political club to try to clobber President Trump. If you did not hear my interview yesterday with Dr. Simone Gold, I cannot urge you strongly enough to listen to that. She sets the facts straight about the kind of reaction America should have had to the coronavirus contrasted with the shutdown of America's economy and the complete crushing of American basic constitutional freedom in this country based on a virus that is not as bad as a flu virus. 
I cannot urge you strong enough to listen to that interview. So you have Trump, you know, being clobbered by all these people. And then you have the debate commission putting as a debate, as the person, the moderator, uh, this woman who is a, a leftist, her family are leftists, her entire operation is leftist. Uh, she is going to be the debate moderator. No one's even pretending that they try to find a neutral moderator. I don't even know that such a person exists, but there's Kristen Welker. She's a, she has deep, deep state Democrat ties. Um, she comes from an establishment Democrat family. They poured cash into Democrat campaigns, into Barack Obama's campaign, Joe Biden's campaign. Um, she is close enough to the Democrat establishment that she got invited to the 2012 Christmas, the White House Christmas party when President Obama was in office. So she may not have a party registration listed today. She's a leftist and she's the moderator. And the debate commission said, sorry, Trump, we're not going to talk about foreign policy. Let's talk again about what a crappy job we would like to accuse you of doing on the COVID, uh, the reaction to COVID. So President Trump, he is, and I urge you to read the book we were talking with Rich Higgins about in the last segment. He is the boulder in the road to stop the leftist takeover of this country. We are not looking at a, an election between Republicans and Democrats. We're looking at you have America or you lose America. You have America the free with the rights guaranteed in the Constitution, or you have the completion of the Obama agenda, the fulfilling of the Obama socialist Marxist agenda that will happen under the Biden administration. So I'm telling you all this to say, President Trump tonight regardless of what the question is, needs to bring out the Hunter Biden laptop email scandal. He needs to bring out what the American people now understand about what Biden was doing in the White House, what Joe Biden was doing in the White House and as a senator, how he became beholden to communist interests, how his family has raked in millions of dollars through the illicit arrangements he makes with Hunter Biden and money flowing through the Bi Hunter Biden and many of his little uh, companies and connections making its way to Joe Biden. Go and listen if you have time to before the debate tonight. Listen to Rudy Giuliani's podcast. He lays it out as only a prosecutor can. So back to Trump tonight. If he doesn't, if he doesn't raise the Hunter Biden laptop and the corruption of Joe Biden, frankly, in every answer to every question, he would be doing a disservice to the American people. The American people, those who tune in and aren't people who are deeply heavily into the news, the only place they're going to find out about what the Biden emails contain, what the corruption of the Biden crime family really consists of, the only way they're going to find it out is if you have President Trump in the debate telling people about it. That is the only way that the people will hear this because the media is going to pretend it doesn't exist. They're still sticking their fingers in their ears and they're la, 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 I can't hear you, won't cover it. And so you, the, the president, with a bully pulpit of being one of the two people in the debate tonight, needs to bring it up. And if the media, if the, if the presidential commission dares, because they've agreed on an idea that they're going to they're gonna mute microphones if people go over their time, if they dare mute the president because he's telling the American people the truth, that the media won't tell them, that the Biden family won't tell them, you know what, I think it's going to actually hurt the media and hurt Biden. The American people need the story told this close to the election and Trump's got a terrific, terrific 
platform to do it and he's got to do it tonight. So do not walk away. I call this segment something about a statesmanlike debate. If you're one of those people that keeps saying, I sure wish we could have debates like the Lincoln-Douglas debates. They were wonderful. They were an exchange of ideas. People, we have a left-wing impending Marxist takeover of this country. That is what the Democrat Party stands for today. That is where they live and who they are. You can't for the same reason you can't negotiate with terrorists, you cannot expect to have at a Democrat at a Democrat controlled presidential debate with Biden being protected by the media, protected by the moderator, protected by the presidential commission on debates. You cannot expect President Trump to be kind of like the Lincoln Douglas debates. He's got to come in and fight and fight. He will. I am very sure. He's got to come in and tell the American people what the left won't tell them. The danger we have facing our country of a guy who is owned by the Chinese. Remember all along how they kept saying President Trump, well, you can't really trust him. You know, he's Putin's puppet. And there was nothing to that. The only person who's a puppet on that stage tonight will be Joe Biden, a puppet of the Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party, as well as all the other deals raking in millions to his family, orchestrated through, uh, through Hunter Biden's communications and connections. This is a man, Joe Biden, who cannot be near the White House. And if it takes President Trump being a little bit failing to answer precisely the question, fine. If President Trump gets angry, who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? falsely accused, lied about, badgered, clubbed, maligned, and lied about again all four years of his presidency by the Biden team, by the Clintons, by the media, by, the, by left-wing America, by people in government, and he still stands. He still stands with the American people. He still stands. The rallies you see, we're going to, I mean, we're going to talk more. If Biden is still in the race on, by Monday, which I don't know if he will be, but if Biden is still in the race on Monday, we're going to talk about, because I had a friend say to me recently, you know, um, you know, uh, yeah, we had the elections and yeah, you know, I don't know how it's going to come out, but how much damage could Biden do in four years? I actually had a friend say that to me, and that's going to be the theme of Deep Dive Monday on Monday. How much damage could Biden do in four years if he were to get elected? This debate tonight matters. President Trump needs to be held to the standard of a warrior defending the future of liberty and not the debate rules in moot court. This is a guy standing up for the freedom of America. I have a huge thing to tell you before I close out the show today. We're going to go to why it matters in just a moment. But I want to mention something. I've talked to you numerous times about the fact that I hosted a conference in Dallas. It was on September 26th. And that conference was called American Women and American Freedom. It was an in-person conference with stellar speakers, home run, stellar, extraordinary speakers. To say the conference was a success does not begin to describe. It was an, an overwhelming success. We had people sitting there glued to their chairs. I had people tell me at the end, you know, my friends and I were kind of thinking about leaving at lunchtime and going out, you know, going shopping to the mall. Can you believe this? Okay. But they said, we couldn't leave. I had people saying we were going to leave early. We couldn't leave. It was so good. So why I'm telling you all this is we finally have all of the speeches from our conference, all of our stellar speakers, including Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, who is now the chair of the state GOP here in Texas, Katie Hopkins 
from England was our kickoff speaker. We have Star Parker, the founder of Cure, based in Washington, D.C. Kelly Ward, the chair of the Arizona GOP and a rock star Republican speaker. We had Rebecca Friedrichs, rock star advocate for teachers and, and educational freedom. We had just a lineup of rock star speakers. And for you who were there, if you, were, if you bought a ticket or you sponsored, you're, not, you're soon going to get an email and you're going to be able to watch all, because I've been getting emails saying we want to watch the conference again. You'll be getting an email with a personal access code. You'll be able to go to americacanwetalk.org and use your login and watch those videos again. I've had many people asking to do that. But if you couldn't come to the conference, if you were not able to come because you're somewhere else in the world or just couldn't come that day, those videos are also available for you. And the way it's going to work is the conference tickets were $150 a person. $150 a person. Many sponsors paid much more than that. I am making the conference interviews, the conference speeches by all these stellar speakers, their home run speakers, available to everyone for $10. Meaning, you go to our website, americacanwetalk.org, and on the home page, you find the word conference. Under conference, you go down to log in, and you can, with it, one $10 payment, you can have access, you can be a conference member of America Can We Talk, a conference member of America Can We Talk for $10, and you can watch all of those conference videos. I tell you, they will light you on fire. You will enjoy them, you'll appreciate them, you'll realize how great the conference was. They'll give you talking points about the issues facing America, talking points from some of the most stellar thinkers in America today. So again, americacanwetalk.org, on the home page, go to conference, drop down, you click on the page that says you wanna go watch the conference, and if you did not buy a ticket, you can watch those videos for a $10 charge, and you'll get an access code to do that. If you were at the conference or you bought a ticket, you'll get an email shortly that'll tell you how to access those at no charge. So I'm going to mention this a few more times next week. It's a great, great opportunity to hear, instead of for $150, to hear all those speakers for a mere $10. And I'm telling you, it will just light you on fire. As I do at the close of every show, I tell you why the stories we talked about today matter to you. So Derek the Wonderful sitting in for Matt the Wonderful. Derek, we talked about uh, the Bobulinski bus Biden. Tony Bobulinski was Hunter Biden's business partner, third generation U.S. military veteran, not a political person. His few political donations have been to Democrats, but he was offended by Joe Biden's dishonest denial of talking about business deals with Hunter. He stepped forward publicly to confirm the authenticity of the emails showing Joe Biden's active involvement in Hunter's business activities with communist China. The conclusion is inescapable. Joe Biden personally profited from sale of his U.S. office and influence. The good guy, decent guy narrative as to Joe Biden is shattered. Material brazen lies about quintessential swamp behavior. That is what elected Trump. I want to repeat that point. Trump got elected because he opposed and spoke up about this kind of quintessential swamp behavior, material brazen lies, such as Joe Biden has engaged in. In saner times, Joe Biden would withdraw from the debate and the election. What will the Dems tell Biden to do and who decides? And as to Trump, a statesmanlike debate, what is statesmanlike 
in any setting depends on context. Tonight's debate, yet another left-wing partisan as moderator, already maneuvering by commission to change topics away from foreign policy, transparently trying to protect Biden. Commission introduced a mute button, intended, of course, to muzzle Trump, follows a 60-minute ambush interview of Trump, which he wisely, strategically, released the unedited version to expose CBS bias and partisanship. Follows, this follows coup number one, the Russia hoax, coup number two, the impeachment scam, coup number three, pandemic politics. A mild-mannered response, indeed, to these outrages is not the response of a leader. Trump has every right to be very angry and to fight, and he likely will. And that, my very fine friends, is America Can We Talk for today. If you'd like to subscribe to this show to get a once-weekly newsletter, go to our website, americacanwetalk.org. Hit the subscribe button. You get a once-week email from me. I never share that list. It's just a once-week email with links to everything we talked about in the show in the previous week. It's also the place you can make a donation to support America Can We Talk. This is a listener-supported show. I would so appreciate your support of this show. You can make a one-time or recurring donation on the homepage, americacanwetalk.org. And my very fine friends, that is my show for today. Thank you so much for tuning in to America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I will talk to you next time. Can we talk truth about America? Can you hear-